The first major story that we want to jump into tonight comes to us from the great state of North Carolina. Sweeping allegations of tampered ballots. The congressional race in North Carolina could be headed for a do-over amid allegations of election fraud. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists at Columbia Journalism School. I am Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at the J School. And today we're going to talk about a story that, as you just heard, got a lot of national attention during the last midterm elections cycle. I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Lisa R. Cohen, who runs the DuPont Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Yes, this story was huge nationally, but the DuPont Award actually went to the local TV station. That's WSOC Charlotte. They're the ones who broke the story, and they were several days ahead of the networks. It's a particularly timely topic right now, especially given all the conversation around mail-in voting. Hey, before we get started, where are you right now, Lisa? Funny you should ask, Abby. I am currently sitting in my living room. Where are you? I am in one of my kids' bedrooms because, like everyone everywhere, we're all working from home these days because of the outbreak of the coronavirus. Even our students at the journalism school are at home on Zoom classes, and all events, even, unfortunately, graduation, have been canceled for the foreseeable future. Yes, but that's not going to stop us. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> no, we're forging on. Today, we're going to bring you a talk that was recorded back in January when political reporter Joe Bruno and investigative producer Mike Stolp of North Carolina's WSOC-TV sat down with Professor Nina Alvarez to talk about their DuPont award-winning reporting. That's right. Joe and Mike were in New York back in January to collect their silver baton for their investigation into a just crazy election fraud story in the U.S. House District 9 race in Bladen County, North Carolina. Before that story exploded nationally, in part because of their dogged shoe leather reporting, they had found that a man named McCray Dowless had tampered with absentee ballots on behalf of the Republican candidate for Congress, Mark Harris. So... Dallas was paid by the Harris campaign, and then he in turn paid a team to go door to door and collect unfinished absentee ballots from voters. So there's like so much wrong with that, starting with, do the word secret ballot mean nothing? I mean, you walk into a voting booth and you cast your vote secretly. It's supposed to be the same for absentee ballots. That's exactly right. So every state actually has different rules around absentee ballots. And in North Carolina, only a member of the voter's family or a legal guardian can mail in their ballot. So just taking the ballots from voters in the first place was really illegal. Yeah, but there's even more because the team that went door to door also acted as witnesses to the vote. You know, that step that they put in place to make sure that fraud is prevented. Right. Anyway, they were the supposed witnesses, but it's illegal for a witness to sign an unfinished ballot, which is what they did. And what's even worse is that instead of mailing those ballots in, the team was allegedly instructed to send them straight to Dallas. And we can only assume what he did with them next. So after noticing this suspicious pattern on the absentee ballots of the same names popping up again and again as witnesses to the vote, reporter Joe Bruno started going door to door himself. Right. This time to the homes of those quote unquote witnesses, this team of fraudsters who may or may not have been doing it knowingly. That includes two women, one named Cheryl Kinlaw and the other named Ginger Eason. We'll hear more in the episode about how those meetings with Kinlaw and Eason went. 
But before we start this episode, we should say, since this conversation was recorded back in January, before the virus really began to spread here in the U.S., it does feature a lot of talk and advice about reporters getting out there, talking to people face-to-face, knocking on doors. And while we are usually big fans of shoe leather in-person reporting here at the J School, we do want to encourage everyone to stay indoors as much as they possibly can in these uncertain times. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation between Professor Nina Alvarez and reporters Joe Bruno and Michael Stolp. As always, this is an edited conversation. You are looking at two winners of the prestigious DuPont Columbia Journalism Award, and these guys deservedly got their baton last night for investigative reports that really broke new ground in terms of holding institutions accountable. Um, So I'd like to introduce them. And then you guys just kind of give a brief overview of how you went about getting that story, how it either came to you or you got to it. Sure. So something that I have discovered in my short journalism career so far is that the world's worst timing always occurs whenever a source calls you and there's a big story they want to tell you about. I've been mowing the lawn and sources have called me. I've been in the shower. And for this story, it broke while I was at an Italian pizzeria uh, drinking a beer and eating a pizza, uh, just waiting for my fiance to get done with a class she was taking. And I had tickets to the Hornets that night. And I got a call from a source and they said, I don't know how you're going to prove this, but there's some sketchy stuff going on in Bladen County. And from there, that kind of got the wheels turning and eventually sources provided us with more information that we were able to use down in Bladen County to help break this story. Uh, When we went down there, we really had no guarantee of turning anything. We were just kind of fishing. We were hoping that we would uh, catch something, and we did. Then I met Ginger Eason. Did McRae tell you to pick up the balance? Yeah, that's what we do. Ginger Eason's confirmation to Channel 9 that McRae Dallas paid her and others to pick up absentee ballots blew the door wide open in the election fraud investigation. There was now no doubt McRae Dallas... A voter, um, again, this was all by chance. We pulled into an apartment complex where we saw a bunch of absentee ballots had been requested. And we talked to a man in the parking lot who said, yeah, uh, a lady in a Mark Harris t-shirt came by and uh, took my ballot from me. And... I said, did you think, like, what, what did you think about, I mean, did you, are you concerned that your vote didn't count? And he said, I, I don't know, I never really thought about it. I thought she was legit. I thought she was just picking up my ballot and uh, working with the elections board. Um, the next day, uh, over the weekend, we had been provided with more information from sources. They were providing us with a list of six people who served as witnesses on the absentee ballot envelopes. So the way voting by mail works is you have to have a couple people sign the envelopes saying that I witness this person fill out the ballot. If you ever voted from college before, you might ask like your roommate or your professor, just somebody in the room with you. And here we had six people that were consistently showing up as witnesses. It's some very weird, a very weird coincidence. So we used that information to go door to door to their homes and figure out what's going on, why, what were they doing with those ballots. And uh, that's when we met Ginger Eason and Cheryl Kinlaw. That was us going to their houses asking, what were you doing with those ballots? And two people admitted to us that they were going around picking them up, which is illegal in North Carolina. And uh, almost all the people in that clip are now facing 
charges for their activities in this election and in the 2016 election as well. Anything you want to add? <laughs> you know, just having, uh, so my station put a lot of resources into this story. Um, they sent Mike, an investigative producer, down to Bladen County with me. He took his personal car and he was able to, we were able to cover more land that way. Um, the, when we first got that, over the weekend when we got that information from the source with all of those names, with the absentee ballot envelopes, um, we had the physical copies of the envelopes as well as like a spreadsheet that our source made us listing all of the names and how many people were on it. We, it looked accurate, but we wanted to make sure it was, so we tracked it by hand and we made our own spreadsheet with the physical copies of the um, absentee ballot envelopes. That was one of Mike's big projects. We started doing it on a picnic bench outside a church. Then we were really annoyed by the church bells that kept constantly going off. So <laughs> Mike moved to a McDonald's in Bladen County and finished the work there for the rest of the day. I'm sure they appreciated us uh, posting up in there for seven hour days for a couple days in a row. But um, it was really helpful to have him on the ground uh, doing that work. So while he was verifying the information, I was out knocking on doors. Just some background on my role. I'm Day by day, if there's nothing else going on, I'm answering all of the angry emails from consumers. I work with our consumer segment about broken washers and bad used cars and things like that. And then if something like this happens, if a reporter gets something like this, I'll jump in and help out. So uh, we were looking back at our notes. We spoke on another panel a while ago, and everything, I was looking day by day, and I thought everything happened in two days, but it was over five days. And the... The person who supplied us with the ballots, I found, none of you are going to want to hear this, no journalist wants to hear it, but I found it by looking on in comments and replies on Facebook and social media, and you don't want to spend your time there, it's just, it's, it's a hellscape. But I saw somebody who knew a little, they were saying very specific things, and I said, this, this person knows something, so I contacted them, and then I, we still don't know who it is, we've never met them, we've been in rooms with them, and they've told us that, but they were at the hearing, but... We, they, I, I don't know what made them provide them to us. I'm glad they did because it gave us a large head start and we knew everybody was coming. Every, it, it turned into a, just a journalism bonanza in, in North Carolina. And yeah, it was, it was a big deal. A part of the challenge with that was we had to verify that you know the information that was being provided to us was legitimate. I mean, we were communicating via anonymous apps that you yeah. can't screenshot in and the messages disappear. It's like Snapchat on steroids. But um, th then we had, once we were provided with all that info, we had to send it to multiple people to make sure that this is actual stuff that like, is, this is legitimate. These are the actual envelopes or photocopies of the envelopes that were used. And for, just for more background on Bladen County, the reason we were at the McDonald's is because internet connectivity is a big issue and it's so rural, there's, there's, not everywhere has internet, not everywhere, McDonald's had Wi-Fi. It's like kind of a news desert, Bladen County. Uh, there's a local paper that publishes three days a week, I think, and uh, it's the, technically Wilmington, North Carolina is their DMA, but Wilmington is many hours away. They don't get the What's Charlotte news station. Oh, I'm sorry. DMA is uh, how all of the TV news uh, markets are ranked. Uh, so there's 212 television news markets. New York is number one. And uh, somewhere in Wyoming or Montana is number two. Or no, 212. Uh, <laughs> Charlotte's 21. 
And uh, Bladen County is kind of in the middle of Raleigh, Charlotte, and Wilmington, and Myrtle Beach. So they really don't have a s big city keeping an eye on them 24-7 like some other parts of our state do. And that probably contributed to how like this has matriculated through the years and how people like McCray Dallas could run the show for so long. And I think we took an unmarked station vehicle. I didn't want to have a car with a station logo driving up and down when we show up at somebody's driveway. I wanted as much element of surprise as we could. And we knew that McCray Dallas had worked on the sheriff's campaign, so they were friends. So we knew there was that element as well. But like, you're, you're nervous about these things. They don't know us. Joe and I don't have southern draws, obviously. I'm from New Jersey. He's from Philly. So I, I kind of was doing all this preparation in my head. I was like, talk slow. You talk fast. Don't, don't curse. <laughs> not, not to insult them, but I was like, I know how fast I can talk sometimes. So I didn't want to. But Joe that interview he's just so disarming that and they're so honest so it that's was also like my reporting style like the same way i'm talking to y'all i'm going to talk to people even if they're engaged in a massive election fraud scheme but it, i i just want to always be like some a reporter that's relatable and not just some guy standing in a box if i would have ran up there if my microphone been like inside edition very have the cameraman right up next to me that she probably would have slammed the door in my face and maybe uh this would be a very different story now. So it's just important for me to always be approachable in these situations. Clearly, a lot of the success you both had in your story coverage was your ability to talk to people. And, you know, you are part of a generation that has a hard time talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you develop this new skill? Just got to pick up the phone and make the call. Uh, truthfully, a lot of sources, like... They can't put things in writing because then it becomes like a public record. So they don't want to be seen texting sensitive information to reporters or emailing it. So a lot of times you have to uh, make those calls. But also it all comes down to relationships, meeting people for coffee, uh, sort of having that friendship with different sources so they know that they can trust you. And when big stories break like this, that uh, they can rely on you to tell the story fairly. And, and Joe was, the camera was rolling mm -hmm. constantly. Yes. Um, and so were people aware right away that they were being? Yeah, I, the camera was very visible. And of course, I had the microphone and I identified myself as a reporter. I would say also for us, what, what did we start on? Wednesday? You got the affidavits? Yes. Friday, first day in Bladen. Yeah. yeah. The first thing I was doing was gathering, you're gathering information on these people. I, I submitted records requests that I went back and looked at. We had McCray Dallas's name spelled wrong the first day because we, I, didn't, I hadn't seen the affidavits and McCray was spelled wrong and his accent, I was spelling it Dallas like the city and it's D-O-W-L-E-S-S, -S, so I spelled it all wrong. But we're gathering background profiles on these people and back to the internet. They don't, they're not on social media. They don't have it. There aren't many. I was trying to find out what these people look like because I had a feeling we were going to be going there and we wanted to know there's a chance if we're talking to the person and they say, oh no, I don't know him, but it's like you're him, but we just never found <laughs> them. So, but there were a few people whose phone numbers we found and on, I think, donations or something, like campaign donations, and they answer the phone. It's, it's the same thing. They, they answer the phone and they talk. And, but normally, I would have probably messaged a couple of them on Facebook or wherever, but it just wasn't there. So I'm 
glad it worked out that way that we had to go. So, so in some ways, the fact that they weren't expecting to see yeah. you and hadn't been alerted of your story really was an important factor. Absolutely, but uh, they did not stop talking though. Eventually when the national media came down, they, they continued to talk. We just happened to get there first. Yeah, I mean, and there were people who were talking to our competition, who weren't talking to us, who were talking to us and weren't talking to anybody else. So there's a lot we didn't get that other, other affiliates, other, other stations, newspapers got that we, and there was so much that we just couldn't cover all of it. Like uh, BuzzFeed did an article that some of the people were being paid in money for drugs and things like that, that we just didn't have time to touch it. We didn't have enough people. We had to keep people. If, if it were up to us, I think we would have brought 10 people, but we just, we didn't have the staff. It'll be a great Netflix miniseries yeah. one day. I hope somebody makes it. I don't know. Well, that's an interesting point, right? Because then the very well-resourced national news organizations came to town. Did that have an impact on your access or your ability to cover the story? Thankfully, I, we were just so far ahead of the national media because we got there first and we had people providing us with information and we had already been working on it for a week straight. So uh, we, we were playing chess and they were playing checkers in a way. But um, that just showed the importance of us getting there first and really establishing ourselves as a leader in the story and then also you know, posting the story online and tweeting about it and Facebook and all those other social media platforms that played a role in really getting the word out and keeping the national media following us and not following them. So in essence, really, the arrival of competition, so to speak, really actually helped your own reporting as well. The person who provided us the ballots, I asked who else has these, and he said, I think one other outlet. And he said he thinks it was national, but I think he or she didn't know if they were on the ground there yet. So and I think that was Sunday. where. Joe happened to be working Sunday night anyway, and we decided, I think we got the ballots Saturday night, and then Joe was working Sunday. He did a story on McCray Dallas's background because he had already been in prison for fraud. fraud. Mm -hmm. um, and then we just went Monday morning. We knew we had to go Monday morning. So just, we had a feeling we were ahead, but it's not like it was familiar territory. So we were all, once they got there, we were all gonna be on the same. I think if we, were to do it again, though, we would probably have pushed ourselves to do that legwork on the verifying information yeah. that Sunday, and we waited until that Monday morning, which, I, I don't know, then do we knock on the door, and is Ginger Eason not home if we, you know, did that work earlier and knocked on her door earlier? I don't know. Those are the kind of variables, but... Um, don't question it. you got to be it, <laughs> it all worked out, but uh, probably I would have liked to have done that work a little sooner. How many stories did you turn out on this? I did a story on this every single day from the Wednesday after Thanksgiving to the middle of January, and then for the first two weeks of February when the evidentiary hearing was going on, and then I had to continue to cover it when they finally called a new election. Um, I had probably dozens, maybe close to 100 stories on this. You did one Friday, didn't you? Was that I did, yeah, I did another one last Friday, yeah, the, on the changes that were made because of all of this. So, because we think of, of daily news as a sprint, right? Like, you just got to, it's today, today, yep. today. But really, in both of your cases, you, it's been a marathon. You've been reporting consistently, developing sources. How important has that figured into the work that both of you do? 
While we were waiting for the evidentiary hearing to happen, the State Board of Elections was very transparent about all the evidence that was being collected, all of the documents being produced via the subpoenas. And uh, that's what really furthered our reporting and allowed us to have a report every single day. But we were working on Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve. We were doing three-way calls a couple hours before the ball dropped, um, putting that stuff out there. But um, having, a, and even when, because there, there was a certain point where producers and management at my station had a little fatigue from the story. They recognized it's still important, but they wanted, they don't want to keep overblowing it. Eventually it ramped back up when the hearing started, but when we're in that lull, that period of three or four weeks while evidence is just trickling out and there aren't bombshells every single day, you know, they got a little tired of, of it. So even if we weren't overblowing it on air and doing full packages on it, I made sure that I still tweeted it out and posted it on social media. That way I was developing our station's brand as the ninth congressional district station. And it became, if there was one 10 second update, the problem for them was we have to explain the setup every single time and it's complicated. And it's how many, not a reviewer wants to hear another minute on absentee ballots and I think that was another I I you never know when you're gonna have to become an expert in something and Joe and I became experts well, Joe's more expert than I am in absentee ballot law on a Saturday afternoon because we had to <laughs> and now I you were gonna say over this five month period. <laughs> well I, we didn't know what was legal and what wasn't and and then now if any producer comes there's an it comes up they come over and it's like oh was there ever an occasion where you thought this is not checking out we kind of had one of those moments with our reporting and i won't go into too many details because i don't want to put false information out there but we had somebody cold call the newsroom claiming to live in a different part of the country saying they had information about what McCray Dallas did with the ballots. And we tried so dang hard to verify that information, but we couldn't get anywhere close. We really couldn't get anybody to tell us if they even like had heard of this person who had the information. So I don't know if it was a prank call. I don't, maybe it was true, but we couldn't yeah. figure out with enough certainty, really anywhere close to having any certainty that what he was claiming over the phone was true. And because he was living all the way across the country, we couldn't go out and meet him. Right. So while you, would, you can attract good people who are trying to be helpful, you can also attract people who Right, and I, I don't want... May I don't, have an axe to grind. Or exactly. I don't know if this was a prank call and trying to throw the story off and, like, you know, blow our credibility. I, I, I don't know, but we showed restraint, and I'm really glad we did. Hi there. I'm Abby Wright from the Prizes Department. Thank you so much for being here. Joe, talk to us about door knocking. You know, in these digital times... People text a question, email a question, maybe they pick up the phone, but you were, you know, going up cold, knocking on the door, they're not answering, you're going again and again. How do you prepare for something like that? And how do you, you know, so that when someone finally does answer, you're rolling and ready, or, you know, how do you psych yourself up for that, not knowing what's ah, going to answer? It's so tough. It really is. And it's not just these kinds of door knocks, but when you're doing cold door knocks on, crime victim families and that's that's uh, we have to do a lot of door knocks in local news 
Um, so, sometimes the stories are not as serious as this, but that's part of the job. Um, I, I had a lot of questions about what was going on. Uh, so uh, I mean, we wanted to know why they were signing for so many ballots. Were they collecting the ballots? What did they do with them afterwards? So it, it was almost like a regular conversation. Just I wanted to genuinely know what was happening with those ballots. So it was very easy for me to rattle off a list of questions. But absolutely, I mean, I was nervous knocking on all these doors, all these strangers' homes. I mean, we knocked on one door. Uh, we never aired this because it wasn't relevant to the story and it was the wrong address. But the guy comes out and with his barking dogs and he has a gun on his hip. And we're like, hold on, who are you? You are not who we're looking for. But um, it is kind of scary. And, you know, I've been in scarier situations than this with knocking on doors. But unfortunately... Sometimes you just have to do that, and um, especially in counties like Bladen County where internet access isn't guaranteed and people don't have that digital footprint, uh, the best way to get in contact with these people is going straight to them. Just a piece of advice for young journalists, I guess. Um, I know there are a lot of personality traits that come together in time that put you where you are today, but what instinct do you think served you the most in effectively telling the story that if these stories landed on you when you first started and you hadn't developed that instinct, the story could have gotten derailed or not told as effectively? So what was that instinct that I think um, you realized really served you well? When I first started out in journalism, like I just had, even like going back to when I was in college working for my student news organization, I just felt like this fire in my stomach, like this gut feeling when I was on a big breaking news story. And some of you in this room may know that feeling that I'm talking about. And uh, that urgency, that you know, tenacity, that inspiration isn't with me every single day on every story, but I felt it for this one. And I really feel like just my passion for this job really fueled my reporting for this. Uh, first of all, um so I was wondering about, um, you said Bladen County is more like a news desert. Mm -hmm. um, was there like an increased, say, suspicion towards journalists? How was, did that impact your reporting? How would you go about those things? I wouldn't say there was much suspicion, but the people were confused at who we were and why we were there. Uh, like, the, oh, you work for the Raleigh TV news station? Oh, you work for Wilmington? Where can I watch this at home? Those were questions that were asked a lot. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say that we were looked upon any differently just because we were there. And it, it was a Charlotte story because the 9th Congressional District and the way that our lawmakers drew the districts uh, included Charlotte and Bladen County, two completely opposite ends of the state. But lawmakers nowadays, they draw maps for all sorts of reasons. They want to compact as many of voters of their certain parties in the district. Um, so that's why it was really important for us is because it, it had a big impact on our viewing area too. But um, not really suspicion, confusion maybe though at our presence, definitely. I was really curious to know if you found any trends throughout your reporting of the types of people and community members that fell victim to the mm -hmm. absentee ballot scam. And if so, do you think that uh, this the scam was ultimately more successful because it targeted 
possibly a more vulnerable group. Yeah, I have a lot of compassion for the people who are caught up in this mess because I, I take them at their word when they say they had no idea what they were doing was wrong. Uh, Blaine County was hit hard by two different hurricanes recently. Uh, a lot of the area was underwater when we were touring there, just reporting. Um, a lot of people have fallen on hard times. The average income in that community is less than $30,000. The most popular employer of that county is a pork um, factory. And uh, one of the women that I interviewed, it was um, Cheryl Kinlaw. I asked her, why did you take this job? And she said, well, it paid 75 to to $100, and I need the money for Christmas gifts. She, she, did, she didn't know what she was doing was illegal. And now she's caught up in all of this. And I have no doubt that the ringleader of the operation, he knew what he was having them do was illegal. And unfortunately, a lot of people got entangled into this situation. But yeah, I, I do feel for them. How about the voters? Who were the, what were they targeting a particular demographic, a particular, you said that there was like a housing complex. Mm -hmm. was, were they a particular economic uh, uh, strata or, or people of color? Or what was? There were a, 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 there were a large percentage of people of color who were targeted, but also regular voters along party lines, I would say, was another. Yeah, I think he was just using previous years to target pretty much everyone who voted absentee. That was, that was what the, the data... And one of the changes that the state made as a result of all of this is uh, the, so the way McRae knew whose ballots to pick up was because the state usual, used to just put all that information online. We can go to the Board of Elections and ask for it. They'll give you who the person is that requested the ballot, what party they are, what's their address. You can look up their name for even more information, how often they voted. Now all that information is confidential until Election Day, so you can't, it, it won't be handed to you anymore. As a political reporter, you obviously have, you know, a beat that you cover, color cover politics, and so you have contacts in a bunch of different areas. So, you know, from your perspective, how important is that? It was crucial for me. I am a beat reporter. I'm a local government reporter, but the way that my station operates is basically anything political falls to me. Um, I had covered the race between Dan McCready and uh, Mark Harris extensively leading up to the election fraud scandal. So I already knew who their campaign managers were, who their spokespeople were, people who were involved in their campaigns. And I actually broke the news to both campaigns that the State Board of Elections held up the results and didn't certify them. Um, it just comes down to making those relationships and, you know, making sure that they know that they can call you and talk to you off the record or talk to you on background. But for me, beat reporting really did fuel uh, th this coverage of the Ninth District. Him being at city council got him, I think, one of the best bits of video. This whole thing was Mark Harris, Yeah, at the, if you want to tell that story. Right. Um, I was at city council covering a meeting where one of our council members predicted there would be mass deaths because of those scooters that are all over the roads in certain cities. Um, and one of uh, – it just so happened that across the room from the government chamber was uh, the local Republican Party was holding their meeting uh, right across from us and Mark Harris was inside that meeting so we decided to set up cameras just to ask him some questions as he left personally I didn't have anything to ask him I didn't know what I was going to do but I know I didn't want to not be in the hallway if all the other stations would be there well Mark decided to use the emergency exit 
to avoid talking to the media. So we had to chase him down the fire stairs. The alarm was going off. Um, he, is, he, escaped, he was sprinting away from me. And keep in mind, I didn't have any questions that I wanted to ask him. But that was, um, that was just because I was at the government center covering my everyday beat that I was able to get that video. Um, he eventually did apologize for uh, running away. Uh, originally, he claimed that he wanted to get home to watch Clemson in the national championship. So. Hi, um, I'm Natalia. Thank you all for being here. Um, I feel like we talked a lot about reputation, and I was wondering if your reputation has ever been challenged and um, with a story, and you felt like maybe you justified or unjustified, and you felt like maybe you actually couldn't tell it and couldn't finish it. Um, if you could speak about that. I was actually surprised more people didn't try to attack my reputation or character. There were plenty of trolls. There were plenty of conspiracy theories about me. My favorite one was the person who thought I was getting solar panels from the Democratic candidate, and I lived in, like, an apartment, a condo. So, no, I wasn't getting any solar panels. But um, at, at the end of the day, I mean, we had a unanimous decision from the bipartisan State Board of Elections, and we had both candidates say, hey, there was so much fraud in this election, we need to have a new one. So really, there isn't a whole lot that people can do to attack me for reporting on it when at the end of the day, everybody agrees that this election should be tossed out and started from scratch. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, a whole election tossed out and started from scratch, not to mention all the criminal charges that were brought. That is true accountability journalism right there. It certainly is. And even though for the time being, the door-to-door -door methods Mike and Joe took to their reporting may not be doable, we hope that their tenacity to get this story has inspired our students who are now tasked with figuring out new and inventive ways of breaking news and getting to the truth. And we are continuing on too. So we'll be back next month with another episode of On Assignment, and this time featuring another 2020 DuPont winner, WKBW reporter Charlie Specht out of Buffalo. And he's going to talk about his investigative story on just the horrific abuse in the Catholic Church in his city. In the meantime, stay safe and check in with your friends and family and maybe even share this episode with them. Yeah, they now have all this free time and they're probably looking for something good to listen to. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Christina Shaman, also helping us today from her bedroom. Thank goodness for modern technology that helped us record this today. And we also had help from our DuPont fellows, Carissa Kuyambao and Jack Rossiter-Munley. And, as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo-Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.